Thank you very much, Danny. I appreciate that. If I may, I'd like to put in a plug for the Hayward Lectures, already mentioned. And Mark Boda is our visiting professor and lecturer. I've heard Mark speak. It's very important to me uh, when we look for lectures, not only to know that they're great scholars or have written important books or something like that, but are they good communicators too? Do they speak well? And uh, let me assure you, I've heard Mark in a variety of settings speak, uh, read learned papers or just speak more off the cuff, and he speaks well and the content is excellent, and the books he has published thus far are quite good. So I encourage you to take advantage of that. Um, you know, it's a shame to skip out. I know, you know, it's Hayward Week. The regular courses are suspended. The temptation might be to relax or go do something else, but you're robbing yourself of an opportunity to hear a, a very uh, thoughtful and a good speaker on uh, the heart of the Old Testament. And that's very meaningful to me, too, because... Yes, I, I do teach uh, New Testament, and that is my uh, field of expertise. But you might not know it, but my dissertation my, and my doctoral studies was actually on the book of Isaiah. And uh, I was originally considered for an appointment at this school in 1981 uh, as a professor. I would be a young assistant professor of Old Testament. Did you know that? And, uh, and I, was, I had uh, dinner with Abner Langley uh, in a hotel in Toronto. And uh, it was a dimly lit room, unfortunately not dimly lit enough, because at one point he leaned forward and peered at me intently and asked me my age. And when I told him, I saw his level of interest quickly fall off. And uh, I received... Uh, uh, a letter from him a week or two later when he said we were looking for someone a little older. Well, providentially, um, I was granted a 21-year period of time to grow up. Uh, as Danny related, I was able to join the faculty in uh, the capacity as a professor of New Testament uh, in 2002. And it's hard to believe that it's been 11 now going into 12 years since joining the faculty here. Anyway, and there's one other thing I wanted to mention, too. For the first time, I'll actually miss uh, two of the three Hayward lectures, so I have to confess this to you, but it's because I'm going to Rome on Tuesday afternoon. So I'll, I'll introduce Mark Boda Monday night and hear his lecture and also attend the uh, luncheon with Mark faculty and other guests on Tuesday, but then I have to hurry home, grab my suitcase, and uh, Jenny and I will then go to the airport. The, uh, it's something for you to think about, and, uh, and, I, and I hope appreciate too. It is a conference that the former Pope, Benedict XVI, uh, convened. Uh, no one knew that he would then resign some months later, but the new Pope, Francis, is very supportive of it. The conference is on the Gospels and Christology, both from a theological and historical point of view. And the assignment that was given me had to do with Jesus' uh, understanding in his final days. And as, um, I'm going to be talking about Jesus' anticipation of death. Some other scholar will talk about the actual words of institution, but I will talk about his 
intimations and explicit predictions concerning his um, uh, forthcoming suffering and death. And so it's quite an opportunity to be with about 25 scholars in all. Four or five of us are Protestants, the rest are Roman Catholic. And I appreciate that ecumenical spirit on the part of the Vatican. My wife and I will actually be in the Vatican apartments where the cardinals usually stay when they come for, uh, to convene to elect a new pope. I found that really interesting. So I'll, I look forward to telling you all about it when I get back. <laughs> we, of course, can't stay together because there are no double rooms. I think we'll see where that goes. So <clears throat> Jenny and I will be down the hall from one another. In any case, this should be interesting. Our MA student, Jesse Richards, who has submitted his MA thesis uh, this week and hopes to defend uh, next month, he will actually be in attendance just as an observer at the conference. And I told him, bring a good camera, get a lot of photographs. I hope to be photographed with one or both of the popes, and especially Francis, who's kind of a, a light-weighted uh, or a light, light-spirited, jovial kind of person, because I think it would be great to get a fist bump scene with him. And uh, that could be one of a kind. It really put ABC on the map. So, you know, think about that. Let's hope it happens. Well, the passage that was read to you from Luke uh, 6, uh, Luke 7, 36 to 50, is one of my favorites. There are, there's so much truth and it's so many levels in this passage. And I should say a word or two about context, and time does not permit a full-scale, in-depth exegesis of the entire passage. There's just one uh, point, really, that I want to make with it. But the context, nonetheless, is very important. What likely has happened... Uh, since uh, Simon clearly doesn't seem to be overly eager, Simon the Pharisee, who is the host for this banquet, uh, he probably has invited Jesus out of a sense of obligation, and very likely uh, the the most uh, probable scenario is Jesus has been a guest speaker. He likely has preached in the synagogue, and then out of obligation, Simon, who could well have been one of the synagogue rulers, Uh, has invited Jesus, likely out of necessity, out of expectation, to uh, come to his home for dinner. Now the other thing we need to know, that for this woman to gain access uh, to Jesus' feet, as the story tells us, to wet his feet with her tears and dry his feet with her hair, this is not inside the building proper. This this Pharisee, knowing who this woman is and assuming Jesus does not know who she is, would never have permitted her to actually step into his house. And so, guided by uh, archaeological finds and so on, it's not too hard to imagine how this uh, piece of property would have been laid out. There would have been a domicile, a house, but it would have been surrounded by a courtyard or garden area itself walled off and communicating with the street with a gate she would have been permitted into that area surrounding the house, like what we would call perhaps a backyard or patio or something like that. And that's where people were uh, reclining at table and reclining, not sitting upright as you are. So reclining with their heads and shoulders toward the low table where they could access the food easily enough and their legs and their feet 
out away from the table, which enabled her to access Jesus' feet without disturbing conversation or dinner or anything else. The other thing you should know is that clearly from what Jesus says, when he gently rebukes Simon about the various things he has neglected to do, there was the expectation that a guest of honor would have his feet washed, that he would be received with a kiss, and perhaps even his head would be anointed. None of this has been done by Simon, and this is what suggests that he has received Jesus not, not with enthusiasm, but instead out of a sense of obligation. And he does provide lunch, and Jesus, of course, has a meal. But not because he wants to do it, really, or is overjoyed to see Jesus. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. When the woman touches his feet and wets his feet with her tears and dries them, and even anoints his feet with perfume, it is likely that Simon assumes that Jesus has mistakenly concluded that she is Simon's servant. That she finally, even if belatedly, is performing for Jesus this custom of honor that should have been done a little earlier. And so he's viewing Jesus and fully aware of Jesus' reputation as being a great prophet. Rumor has it, perhaps even the anointed one, perhaps the Messiah. But what kind of a prophet is this one? He doesn't even know, and I'm quoting verse 39, who this woman is, what sort of woman she is. Namely, she is a sinner. And there's an assumption at work here. Not only would a prophet, a true prophet, have clairvoyant power and know things about people he has never met, but of course as a holy man he would never want to be touched, not even his feet touched by a sinful woman. So there are at least two assumptions operative here. And these assumptions are seen throughout Scripture in a variety of ways. And for clairvoyant power, one need go no further than Elijah and Elisha, who were in fact prophets from the north, that is from Galilee, as it would be called later. So they're local heroes. So everybody in Galilee knows all about Elijah and Elisha. They had clairvoyant power. They knew what was in the king's heart. They knew who was coming. They knew things that, well, ordinary people could not know because they had the Spirit of God. So this is what he's thinking, and probably very smugly, and I can imagine perhaps even glancing at a a fellow uh, Pharisee or synagogue ruler at table and winking and nudging and rolling his eyes perhaps, like, what kind of prophet is this? Doesn't he even know what is happening? This is when the story gets so interesting. Jesus then says to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Well, what is it? Probably thinking, oh, okay, this is going to be hard. I better be ready. And he tells this simple little parable. It's one of the simplest Jesus ever tells. Two verses. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he forgave them both. Which one of them will love him more? It's not rocket science. Simple question. I can still imagine Simon perhaps trying to hold back an obvious expression on his face, rolling his eyes or something like, oh, this is hard. This guy's a great teacher. He's profound and deep. Really? So he says, well, the one I suppose to whom he forgave more. And Jesus told him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, 
the woman that Simon has been thinking about. He looks at her, so he's turning his head away and glancing toward his own feet where she is. And he says, do you see this woman? I would love to have been there because I'm sure that table got real quiet. And the look on Simon's face would have changed. Just imagine the thoughts now going through his head. I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. So right then and there, Simon would know, he knows this woman is not my servant. He knows that I neglected that courtesy. Good grief, he knows what I've been thinking. And what was that about prophets with clairvoyant power? She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you her sins, which are many. Jesus knows who this woman is. Knows that she is sinful. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And what is the evidence of this? For she loved much. Please understand what he's saying. He's not saying she's forgiven because she washed my feet. She's washing my feet because she is forgiven. She's experienced God's grace in great measure. And look at it. Look what she's doing. The outpouring of her appreciation. Her gratitude for what God has done in her life. But, on the other hand, because we have two two persons in that parable, on the other hand, he who is forgiven little, loves little. In context, of course, the implication is that Simon is that person. He's experienced a little bit of God's mercy and forgiveness. A little, at least as he perceives it. And and so he shows a little bit of gratitude. And then he says to her, for everyone to hear, your sins are forgiven. And your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He says it for everyone to hear, and it's hard to imagine how meaningful that would have been for this woman in a culture of honor and shame, public honor and shame, that culture then, to have this person of such stature and reputation who has just demonstrated much to the humiliation of Simon that he is the real McCoy, he is what people are saying about him, and he has said in the hearing of all, you are forgiven and your faith has saved you. It's a beautiful passage. It's a very meaningful passage, and we could unpack it and go on and on. There are so many other details. Simon the Pharisee was stunned to learn that Jesus indeed was a prophet who knew who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him. He knew perfectly well that she's a sinner, and a sinner saved by grace, forgiven and a person who now shows gratitude to God and God's agent for bringing that about. He's stunned further to learn that indeed Jesus does have the power to forgive sins. He has the power to know a sinner, the big ones and the little ones. He must then have the power to forgive them. But the real point, and this is what I want to emphasize in this brief time together, the real point 
that Jesus was making here is that the degree by which one experiences God's grace and forgiveness is often reflected in the level of our gratitude and our commitment to Christ and to His work. Those who have been rescued from the pit of misery, self-destruction, and hopelessness have a very clear grasp of what they have gained. And they are filled with gratitude. I was reminded of that two weeks ago. I was in New York at a Chosen People conference. I was one of the speakers. But most of the speakers are Jewish Christians. And most of those in the audience are Jewish and believers or seekers. It was interesting to find that. And it was wonderful to hear the testimony. So uh, interspersed with our presentations on our various topics was a testimony, usually 10 minutes or so. And I was very touched by these testimonies. And one of the things that was very surprising to me, at the end of one of the testimonies, and they were all uh, uh, Jews who had become Christians, he said, you really want to be anti-Semitic? I'll tell you what anti-Semitism is. Failing to share, if you're a Christian, failing to share the gospel with a Jew because you're worried about offending him. I thought that was interesting. Now, I know Jewish scholars at Society of Biblical Literature. I see them every year and in other conferences, especially with my work on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I've heard uh, Jewish scholars make critical comments or annoyance or something about Christians who reach out to the Jewish people. And so I understand that. But this Jewish person who reacted with annoyance the first time he heard the gospel, and I heard that over and over again in their testimonies, was profoundly grateful that someone was willing to share Christ with them anyway and how they were transformed. One of the speakers, or one of the, um, not a speaker, but again, someone who shared his testimony is a man from Iran. And he surrounded the U.S. Embassy in 1979, calling for its, in, in, you know, what they did, invade the embassy and take hostage the embassy personnel. That was an outrage, violation of diplomacy and everything else. It was terrible. And then 50-some hostages subjected to imprisonment and humiliation and threats for over 400 days. You remember that, some of you. And he said, I was one in the, one in the crowd. He said, I was chanting death to America, my wife and I. And then he stopped and said, I, I, I apologize for that. We all chuckled and went on and talked how someone shared the gospel with him. He's a believer now. And when his testimony was finished, the man who introduced him is Mitch Glazer. He's the uh, president of Chosen People in the United States. He's Jewish. Hugged the man. And they're good friends. One of them's a you know Iranian former Muslim who was all about destroying Israel and wiping the Jews from the face of the earth. And there's Mitch Glazer. And the testimony from them both as they talked was that what united them was Christ. And I think somebody else made that point a long time ago. That's right. Another Jewish believer in Jesus named Paul. In Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek or Persian. That's right. That's the wonderful thing about the gospel. And we are, like Paul says, ambassadors for Christ, sharing the gospel. But it's not real popular right now in Western society. We have an abundance of everything, and 
I think we run the risk of being people who have have been forgiven, at least we perceive it, we've been forgiven a little. For most of us, we haven't been pulled out of a pit. Now, I, I could be wrong. There could be people here that say, oh, wait just a minute, and I don't mean to presume. But for many of us, we have grown up in security and abundance. Indeed, we have too much abundance when it comes to food. That's one of our big problems. We have abundance, we have security, we have health care, we have so many things that people around the world, the so-called third world especially, do not have. We have much. And because we have so much, we don't give thanks for much. We presume it. And that's my concern. I was planning on reading a couple of paragraphs from an essay in this uh, magazine that just came out. It's in context. Ravi Zacharias International Ministries produces it. It's called In Context. It's, the essay I'm looking at is Rick Manifo's essay on atheism in the lap of luxury. And the point he makes, and I'm not going to read the parts that I thought I might, but the point he makes is that atheism, the new atheism tends to flourish in places where there is plenty, in places that are um, economically advanced, politically stable, society is mostly secure, and we have all the good things of life. In other words, there is the luxury that makes uh, the smug, smarty kind of attitude possible and in vogue. I wonder, though, and here's my exhortation, I wonder, even if we're not atheists and we reject Dawkins and Bill Maurer and the cr- that crowd that makes comedy of it all, But I wonder if we're not drifting into a similar direction. It sometimes manifests itself as the theology of prosperity. Uh, Sometimes uh, it's just a shallow theology. And what really concerns me, and here's where I will conclude, what concerns me is that we are guided uh, very much by a desire not to cause any offense. See what I mean? I worry that the church's testimony has been compromised, that in some ways we're not much better than Simon the Pharisee. We love some, but not much, because we've been forgiven a little. At least that's what we think. We are reluctant to proclaim the gospel lest we offend someone. Our commitment to evangelism has softened. Perhaps that is why some people have no interest in apologetics. We don't want to be accused of being narrow-minded or intolerant. Imagine for a moment if Jesus, when He was on His way to Jerusalem, told His disciples, now look, we don't want to cause any offense. I don't want to do anything that's controversial. I wouldn't want to upset the ruling priests. Let's just be nice. Let's try to make everyone happy. What if Peter on Pentecost stood up and said, brothers... What can I tell you that will comfort you and make you happy? What if Paul had been, as some accused him, a people pleaser and and shied from controversy? Would we have ever sent out missionaries anywhere? Would there ever have been reformers? Would there ever have been a commitment truly to the gospel and to evangelism? So I conclude then with what Paul says in Romans Romans chapter 1, 
a letter that has probably the single most important letter ever written and the impact it has had around the world in history. He says in verses 15 to 16, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Isn't that good? I hope we're not. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. Buddha doesn't save, neither does Muhammad. Transcendental meditation does not save. Yoga does not save, and to the best of my knowledge, neither does Taekwondo. <laughs> Jesus Christ saves, and it was in Him. God forgave humanity's sin. And it's a big, big forgiveness, and therefore let us love big. Let us share Paul's eagerness. Thank you.